As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Ask N.T. Wright Anything podcast. Hello and welcome back to the show, brought to you in partnership with N.T. Wright Online and SBCK, Tom's UK publisher. I'm Justin Briley, and today on the show, questions like, why bother with Earth and not just create heaven? Why try to make the world a better place if God's going to fix it in the end? And is the world getting better or worse because of Christianity? Tom is answering listener questions on the now and not yet of new creation this week. Plus an interesting question on whether Christians can achieve perfection in this life as well. Um, By the way, Richard in New Zealand said it's a profoundly helpful podcast. Thank you for leaving this review, Richard. Especially so for people with an evangelical background who, like me, grew up with a very limited view of the gospel, which didn't really give a convincing framework for how we should then live. Uh, So glad it's been helpful to you out in New Zealand, Richard. And if you can leave us a rating and a review on your podcast provider, it does help others to discover the show as well. By the way, we've got something coming up later on in March that you may want to be part of. It's another Ask Anything show, this time a live one with William Lane Craig, one of the best known Christian apologists and philosophers in the world. You can be part of it on the 21st of March. It's online. You can attend from anywhere in the world. It's free. You just need to register at unbelievable.live. If you'd like to be part of that, the link is with today's show. For now, let's leap into your questions. Well, today I'm talking with Tom on your questions on the world, and it's going to be sort of flow into next week's session where we're talking about kingdom work as well. But um, people have questions around why we should bother with improving the world, about you know how how what we do now makes a difference to the world to come, and so on. Um, So, so let's leap into some of these. Uh, In fact, two that I think are quite similar, and I'll 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 ask them both in, in one go, as it were. Tom Stephen from Toronto in Canada, first of all, says, why wouldn't God just skip the earth bit and go straight to the new heavens and the new earth? I can't see how it would be just for our learning or growing, since I assume stillborn babies, etc., are not excluded. And um, and then in a similar vein, Sam from Vancouver in Canada says, um, if there will eventually be a grand resurrection and a perfect new earth, what's our motivation to lean into and engage with our physical and immediate world? I take the Sermon on the Mount very seriously and approach the gospel fairly humanistically. But if part of the gospel is soteriologically driven, perhaps you can explain that phrase, Tom, I find it troubling to hold the two at the same time. So, so yeah, questions here on what the point is, I suppose, of the, if, if this is all a precursor to the new heaven and new earth, 
what what difference really does it make how good a job we're doing in the here and now and uh, and and so on so on tom yeah the, the, these are these are great questions and i think one of the exciting things about these questions is that they clearly arise from a new awareness that many people have that the bible isn't telling a story of how we leave this earth and go to heaven but is telling a story of how god is planning the new heavens and new earth which um mm. both of these questioners um refer to and then the question it, which is a very biblical question comes back how long O oh lord how long why are you delaying why why can't mm. you make it all happen right away which is a question that comes in the psalms it comes in the prophets it comes in the book of revelation etc etc um the question question of apparent divine delay um has been with us for a very long time um and i think that is that is bound to be about our perception i've often said to to students when they're thinking about what they're going to go on and do that you will get the guidance you need when you need it which is probably quite a bit later than when you want it and I think that happens the same with lots of other things as well in life um, it seems to me that the, the, the underlying answer to this question is very similar to what we said in a previous episode about prayer that God wants humans to be involved in the work humans are not just decoration they're not just the sort of primary characters in God's puppet show um, it's much more than that. God has created us to, to be uh, responsible agents within his world. And as I've said before on the show, um, I think this is ultimately Christological. God makes humans to be independent but obedient agents. That's always a paradox. So mm. that he might himself come in the person of his son and become the agent within his world, the perfectly obedient son, who nevertheless, as Hebrews says, learnt obedience through what he suffered. Now, why couldn't Jesus just come, blast all the opposition out of the way and say, okay, we're just going straight for it now? Um, the answer seems to have to do, as many Jewish thinkers were aware, with the patience of God and God not willing to foreclose on the evil that's out there in the world too soon, many Jewish writers and some early Christian writers were quite clear about this. If God stepped in and said, okay, we're making the new thing right now, there's an awful lot of people who are at present rebelling and not wanting to be part of that, who would be left out, um, who would exclude themselves from that. And God wants to wait and woo them and bring more people to be mm. part of the great project mm. and to have a share in the ultimate new creation. And so that's all going on in the background, as it were. And then I go to verses like 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight, which regular listeners to this podcast will have heard me talk about before, where Paul says, at the end of the great chapter on resurrection, of all things, therefore get on with your work, because in the Lord it's not wasted. And that's the key mm. thing, that what you do in the present will somehow, as that great theological word somehow, will somehow be part of the new world God is going to make. Jesus talks about giving a cup of cold water to somebody because they believe in him and that that person will not go unremembered for, for doing that. That even small gestures like that will be taken up and woven into the great tapestry of God's new creation. Now, I don't know how, um, you know, the book that I'm trying to write at the moment or the painting that an artist down the road is painting at the moment, I don't know how they will be part of God's new creation. Mm. Um, like many things, like the resurrection itself, it's something that we actually take as a matter of faith, as a matter of belief. 
um, you know, that the resurrection seems highly unlikely, of course, because we know that dead bodies stay dead. Mm. But all the evidence for Jesus' resurrection is so strong that, and, and the fact that when a community is built on that, it actually works mm. and becomes what we now mm. know as the church, mm. that, um, okay, we go with that. And then we say, well, if that's what God's going to do, maybe God can and will take even the small things that we are called to do in the present and weave them into this great picture. Um, I think, Justin, you will have heard me use the illustration before and probably other listeners will of the stonemason working on the cathedral who has been told he's got to carve this bit of stone with this particular pattern and he can't even see where that bit of the pattern mm. is going to fit into the next stone. Somebody else is working on mm. that at a different bench. It's mm. only when mm. all the stones are taken up and put onto the Great mm. West front of the cathedral or whatever that they all make sense. And the stonemason mm. has been working for the cathedral. He's not been building the cathedral. He's been carving for mm. the cathedral. In the same way, we are not mm. building God's kingdom. We are building for the kingdom. So uh, mm. improvements in the world now are going to be part of that. And of course, we have seen, I think this is going to be a later question, we have seen mm. all sorts of things in the world radically change as a result of the gospel. And I don't think we should just say, oh, well, that was nice, but it's kind of incidental. It seems to me that is actually part of what God is up to with all of this. Um, so uh, mm. I, uh, this is Sam from Vancouver in British Columbia says, I approach the gospel fairly humanistically, but if part of the gospel is soteriologically driven, I'm not sure what that meant. Soteriology is about salvation, God rescuing us from death and all mm. that causes it, particularly sin. Um, and but, but the humanistic thing is about being genuinely human, and we are saved precisely in order to be genuine humans. Right. And so I think I, I wonder, for, for, for me, I, I wonder if... If what Sam's referring to there, I, I I thought perhaps he's hinting at that that often that dichotomy that people do bring up between sort of are we here to do social justice on behalf of the kingdom or are we here to get people saved and 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 I suspect perhaps that's what's driving Sam's question there. So when he says I approach the gospel fairly humanistically, I, I interpret it in this sort of way in which we're supposed to do good social, um, justice, social yes. justice and yes. so on. But yet yes. I can see that it's also about people being transferred from the kingdom of darkness into light. So if it's really about that, does any of this social justice stuff make any difference to that, you know? The, the, two, flow, the two flow together. Here's the mantra which I've developed over the last few years. God is going to put the whole world right. That's what he's promised. It's there in the Psalms, in Isaiah, it's in the New Testament. God is going to put the whole world right. In the present time, through the gospel and the spirit, he puts human beings right, that is justification, so that they can be part of his putting right project for the world. Mm. And as I've often said, if Jesus is raised from the dead and has sent his spirit to be with us, then of course this starts now. It isn't postponed until some future date. The energy of resurrection and the spirit is there to enable us to be putting right people in the present, which is why if we don't care about justice in the world, etc., etc., why should we expect people to believe us in a gospel which is about God putting the whole world right, which is, mm. of course, soteriology, because it's rescuing the mm. world from uh, death and corruption and decay and everything that causes it, specifically sin. 
Yeah, thank you very much. Always helpful to be reminded, I suppose, that, that we've sometimes falsely created this this dichotomy between the two. But I do feel that's oh, getting absolutely. better, Tom, that, that increasingly people are sort of, you know, um, putting those two together. Here's another question from Marshall in Boise, Idaho. Um, essentially, it boils down to is the world getting better or worse? Um, he says it seems here in America that many Christians, especially more conservative groups, think the world is much more evil than it ever has been before and that the world will continue to grow more evil until the consummation or whatever happens next. That idea is supported with texts such as in the last days there will come times of difficulty, Second Timothy, and in, indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and imposters go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived again from Second Timothy. And now um, Marshall says, I struggle with this perspective. It seems to me that if the resurrection changed the course of history, the kingdom of God should be gradually spreading and bringing more love and healing to the whole creation. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end, to quote Isaiah. Which is it? Is God's world getting better or worse? And how should we think about the future of the world for Christians and all people? Yeah, thank you, Marshall. This is a great question. And it's it's really, really important culturally because how people see the world, whether it's getting better or worse, has a great deal to do with what they then think they ought to be doing in the world. And part of the problem I see with people think, saying that the world is getting worse and worse and worse is that that tends to inculcate a sense that there's only a few of us um, proper Christians left and there's fewer and fewer and we just have to sort of huddle together and wait for God to rescue us. That was a very popular view in the 19th century. And indeed, that was the view of those Plymouth Brethren folk who um, basically invented the new modern version of a, of a doctrine of the rapture, um, that, that we're waiting for God to get us out of here and the world is just going to get worse and worse and worse until that, till that happens, and so on and so on. Um, now, it's interesting culturally that in the early 18th century, and really behind that as well, 16th and 17th century, there was a lot of reformational thought which generated the idea precisely that the world was getting better and better. Um, and mm. the, the parade example in the first half of the 18th century is Handel's Messiah, where the, the libretto for the Messiah, which is all taken from biblical texts, is about Jesus doing what he did and then the gospel spreading out into the whole world ending with the hallelujah chorus, the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, before the general resurrection, which happens in the next bit of the great oratorio. Mm. So you get the conversion of the world. And there were many in the early 18th century who thought the world was getting better and better under the influence of the gospel. Well, they could see that mm. there were many signs mm. of that, that the missionaries went out and brought um, modern medicine and so on, such as it was then, to many communities that didn't have it. Unfortunately, they also brought all sorts of other things and mm. it was that awareness of the ambiguity of a kind of Christian optimism, which then by the end of the 18th century produced this sense that no, 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 the gospel is kind of shrinking. There's only a few of us who believe anymore. And that now this was then pushed, of course, by the secularists, um, 
um, in in Europe and America that that now the state is going to do it. The state is going to do mm. education. The state is going to do medicine. The state will look after people. And you Christians, you go and teach people to say their prayers so that they can go to heaven one day. So all of that is going on. I and others have written at length about mm. this great shift. But ever since then, the late 18th century, which is precisely when America and France in their modern forms got founded, as it were, um, there's been that sense that, that we have the split of church and state and the church is just about these people who are going to heaven one day, but the secular world is now doing everything else. Thank you very much. Now, of course, since uh, the secular dream has had some pretty nasty shocks through the 20th century, uh, whether it's the First World War or ending uh, at the beginning of the 21st century with 9-11 or whatever, the sense of the secular dream running out of steam has been quite important. Um, but then you do get pockets, and I guess Idaho may be one of them, where people are still clinging to the basically 19th century view of the world getting worse and worse and worse, and a few Christians clinging on for dear life, as in those apparent meaning of those texts from Second Timothy. Um, but I want to say two or three things here. M my, um, my friend Tom Holland, the historian who Justin mm. knows well, and we've talked together on this show, um, mm. Tom Holland has written a book recently called Dominion, in which he's pointed out, historically speaking, that the world has changed radically through the impact of the Christian gospel, even when people deny it, so that the secular assumptions of secular modernity are themselves quite remarkably shaped by impulses which came from the Judeo-Christian tradition. Uh, uh, there was an example just this last week, uh, we're recording this show just after the terrible mm. earthquake in Turkey and mm. Syria. And one of the things that's happening almost at once is that the international community, as we now call it, is pitching in with relief efforts, with teams of mm. people who are experts at digging out collapsed buildings, with people sending blankets and tents, mm. with people sending mm. food and medicine from around the world. Now, I'm an ancient historian, first and foremost. That would never have happened in the Roman Empire. Mm. You have an earthquake, mm. lots of people have died. Oh, well, that's too bad. Uh, Zeus must have been cross with them, or, or uh, Athena mm. sent a thunderbolt or something. But we mm. shrug our shoulders, and yeah, there are some very sad people out there, and they'll probably be begging on the streets, but there's not a lot we can do about it. And already mm. in the Book of Acts, fascinatingly, we see the beginning of the response to that, that when there's a famine, um, which is prophesied, the church in Antioch, 400 miles north of Jerusalem, they say those people in Jerusalem who gave up all their possessions and are being persecuted for their faith, they're going to be in trouble. We're going to send them help. Now, the church in Antioch was not a Jewish church. They were mostly Gentiles. They, they were not mm. Jewish. They weren't part of the same geographical area or family or culture, but they knew they were part of a larger family and they had an obligation to treat as family the people who were going to be suffering. Now, as I say, in ancient history, that would never have happened. The Greeks and the Romans wouldn't have bothered. Um, if, if something bad happened, get out of town and run, re-establish yourself somewhere else, wash your hands of it, too bad. Um, but now the whole world, broadly speaking, not everybody, but the world as a whole tends to think, oh my goodness, there are human beings who are suffering there, we've got to go and help.
And the fact mm. that we now know that education is good for everybody and we ought to try and provide it. It's difficult, but we know. Likewise, medicine. These are signs that actually the, the impulse of the Christian gospel rooted in the Jewish world has made enormous impacts on the way that people think. The very idea of human rights. Nobody in the ancient mm. world thought about human mm. rights. You know, we've got slaves and we can do what we like mm, with them. Mm, and mm, alas, mm. many men thought we've got women. We can do what we like with them, etc., um, etc. Et the idea of human rights, it, it's a struggle. We don't always get it right. Mm, we sometimes mm, misunderstand mm. it. But it is rooted in the Christian gospel. So goodness knows what God wants to do in the next generation. Maybe there are other ways in which... Uh, Christian witness could be transforming the world, transforming attitudes, transforming um, people's beliefs in what makes for a good and wise society. That's a very exciting possibility. And the negativity of saying, oh, no, the world's getting worse and worse, merely puts the brake on any such creative Christian exploration of options. And I think mm. it's time to take that brake off and okay. say, what can and should we be doing? Thank you very much, Tom. Um, that's that's a helpful and balanced answer to to that question. Maybe we can just squeeze one more in. And and having talked about you know the state of the world, um, better or worse, this is a question more at a personal level from Justin in Chattanooga, Tennessee, who wants to know about Christian perfection and is it possible? So um, Justin is a Methodist pastor and says I've studied a great deal of your fellow Anglican, John Wesley. I'm curious about your thoughts on Christian perfection. Wesley would not have claimed to be a theologian and his views seemed to change over the course of his life, but he seemed to believe that Christian perfection was attainable and likely even necessary in this life through the power and gift of God's sanctifying grace and our participation in the new kingdom. It's hard to narrow the doctrine down to a few sentences without committing heresy. But I hope Tom had some thoughts on the matter of Christian perfection. So, uh, I mean, first of all, it, I'm, I'm amused that, that he counts John Wesley a fellow Anglican when most people would assume he's a, he, he is a Methodist, obviously, but, but obviously he started out well, as an Anglican. We can comment on that because John Wesley himself said towards the end of his life, I live and die a member of the Church of England and I advise you all to do the same. In other words, he didn't want to start a new church. He wanted to be a yes. pressure group transforming the church from within. Mm. I, I very much sympathise with that. Our present church certainly in England and Anglicans around the world needs a lot of transforming and there's always a danger of new breakaway mm. movements which then just mm. dissipate energy. Um, yes. That's the real yes. problem with breakaway movements, that they take mm. more energy than, than working from within the structures if you can mm, so mm. point taken um, I was recently in Asbury Seminary in Kentucky and uh, there is a statue of John Wesley there and I went and paid homage he was a very little chap much shorter than me I think he was only five foot two <laughs> or something like that and uh, the thought of this little man with all this amazing energy leaping on his horse and yes. going off and preaching the gospel in uh, fields and open air and to miners and so on wonderful now the question of Christian perfection actually goes back at least as far as St. Augustine, who wrote a whole treatise on this. And Augustine seemed, I'm not an Augustine scholar, but my memory is that he seemed to want to have his cake and eat it. He wanted to say on the one hand that if we really believe in the Holy Spirit, then in theory it is possible that the Spirit will work more and more and more in someone's life until they are fully in tune with what God the Father is doing, fully shaped according to the pattern of Jesus Christ, etc. However, Augustine knew only too well from his own experience and as a pastor and a bishop that most people were nowhere near that and that, um, in fact, 
the Christian life seemed to be a grinding of gears between the pull of the old and the energy of the new. And certainly that's been my experience as a Christian. Uh, I suppose as I look back, there are many things in my life where I think maybe the Holy Spirit has enabled me to improve in this way and this way, but I'm very much aware of other areas where I pray, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, and I pray that the Spirit will do fresh work. Because the standard is pretty high. If you read Romans 6, 7, and 8, which are passages I come back to again and again, um, it, it, we are not encouraged to settle down with the second best. We are not told, oh, well, it's all right, just make a bit of an effort and, and, and that'll be okay. No, we are told, um, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, then you will live. But if you uh, allow the flesh or the body to have its own way all the time, then you are courting the destruction of death because you're, you're, you're playing, with, uh, playing with fire if you're doing that. So mm. those warnings are real and they imply that it is possible to advance in the spirit. But what, count, what counts as perfection? Um, you know, there, there were great movements in the 19th century of partly of Wesleyans, but partly of others, of Baptists, etc., who reckoned that you could have a second blessing or maybe a third blessing after you've been converted. Later, there would be this new infilling of the Spirit and you would attain a level of sanctity where you could no longer sin. And Charles Haddon Spurgeon, mm. the great Baptist preacher in the 19th century, had a short way with people who said that um, in one of his, I think, letters. He says that this, some gentleman came to see him and told him that the Holy Spirit had enabled him to live with complete sinless perfection. And Spurgeon said, so I picked up the water jug and emptied it over his head. And his perfection <laughs> did not seem to remain very long after that. Um, you know, Spurgeon would have no truck with that kind of pompous, oh, yes, the Lord has enabled me now to be totally sinless. <laughs> now, it is possible that there are some humans who, through prayer and fasting and meditation, and through meeting Jesus in the faces of the poor and working for the good of the people who are at the bottom mm. of the pile, etc., who do start to become more significantly holy and complete. And the thing is, mm. they would be the last ones to realize it. They would yes. be the ones who would say, no, no, of course not. I'm, I'm a sinner like the rest of you. But other people might see in them. Um, some uh, People have sometimes talked about such people mm. with their faces mm. actually shining um, without realizing it. And so th mm. th there are all sorts of pathways here. Um, I think the main thing to say is we have to be constantly um, cautious about making claims about ourselves. We have to hold before ourselves the model of the complete holiness of Jesus and pray for his spirit that we may approximate more and more to that while being realistic about who we are mm. and where we are. Uh, it's, it's a tough yeah. I, th I think the danger is to cut the knot by saying, oh, yes, you can be perfectly holy. Now get on and do it. I don't think that's realistic. Thank you very much. Uh, something you said there reminded me of that that uh, phrase there is about quantum physics. That if you think you've understood quantum physics, then you haven't understood quantum physics. And in like manner, you could say if you if you think you've achieved perfection, then you probably haven't achieved perfection. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah. yeah, anyway, yeah, good stuff. Thank you very much, Tom. It's lovely to to catch up. I should just have quoted Philippians three. Paul says, "I haven't yes. yet attained this. I am not already perfect." But I press on to make it my own because Messiah Jesus has made me his own. Philippians 3 is the crucial text on that. 
That's a good good place to end it. Thank you very much, Tom, uh, for these questions. We're going to continue this theme of, of the kingdom work and what the kingdom looks like and how we can, you know, think about that in our own lives in a practical way uh, today. Uh, that'll be coming up on next week's show. But for now, thanks for being with me this week, Tom. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's show. And if you find it helpful, do consider supporting us at premierunbelievable.com, where you can also register for our regular newsletter and never miss a thing. Plus, of course, you get the link to ask Tom a question yourself. By the way, that live show with William Lane Craig is coming up on Tuesday, the 21st of March. You can register for free to be part of the live online audience at unbelievable.live. For now, God bless you and see you next week when Tom will be answering questions on what counts as kingdom work.